Well, friends, good morning again and a warm welcome to McLean Press. My name is James, and it's my privilege week by week to be able to be up here uh, learning from God's Word and sharing in God's Word with you together. I invite you to turn with me, whether you're here in the sanctuary, down in the Fellowship Hall, or online, uh, to the book of Titus. Titus chapter 2 is our text for the morning. If you have a pew Bible, you'll find this on page 998. As you turn there, let me say if you were with us last week, as promised, we did buy more copies of Jesus, Justice, and Gender Roles. If you're here in the sanctuary, you can find them at the Book Nook. If you're in the Fellowship Hall, there's a table at the back you can find those copies on. We'd love for you to pick up a free copy and take that home if you're intrigued to read up more on, on last, week's, last week's topic. This week, though, let's uh, give our attention to Titus chapter 2. We're going to read the whole chapter, verses 1 through 15. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything, They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. As we come to God's word, let's go to him for his wisdom. Let's pray together. Father, we do believe that every word that has ever come from your mouth is for our good. So would the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So a couple weeks ago, I was having dinner with three friends here in the area around the table. There was a pastor and a scientist and a journalist, and then one of those DC types who you know well, but still can't really explain what they do, um, and really don't really have any idea how, how they actually make a living. Well, here we are, we're sitting down having dinner together, when one of them turns to one of the other guys and says, you know, this might sound a little strange, because as you know, I'm, I'm an atheist, but I'm really glad that you're a Christian. Other friends said, yeah, that does sound strange because you are an atheist and so you think I'm building my whole life upon a lie. Like, why would you be pleased that I am am doing this? And the atheist replied, well, because, you know, 
I can really tell that it's made a beautiful difference in your life. Now, when I heard that, I was struck. Why? Because I, I couldn't help but wondering if my friends would say the same about me. Uh, what, what about you? If, you? if you are a Christian, what do you think your friends, your family, uh, your neighbors, those who don't know the Lord, how would they describe the difference being a Christian has made to your life? Would they say it's made a beautiful, wonderful difference? Of course, we all know the gospel should make a difference to the kind of lives that we lead, and our passage helps us understand this morning how. It has some good stuff for us. Paul addresses various different groups, older men, older women, so on and so forth, and he describes with many examples the kind of difference that the gospel makes. Now, rather than walk through each of of these and detail the examples that he gives, I instead want to this morning uh, take a step back and just make three observations about the gospel life from this text. We're going to see first that the gospel life is life together, Second, that it's life for each other. And thirdly, that it's life for the world. Life together for each other and the world. Let's look at these three things. First of all, then, starting with this idea that the gospel life is life together. The theme of family has run throughout our text. Remember back in verse 4 of chapter 1, where Paul referred to Titus as his true child in the faith. Then in verse 11 of of chapter 1, Paul referred to congregations, to to local churches as families. Well, now in this passage, he goes on to make more explicit the idea that we're to view one another as family. We are family because of our shared faith. United to Jesus Christ, we are now united to each other. So, take a look at your neighbor. Turn around, take a look at him. Right? Embrace a little awkwardness with me for a moment, okay? You might not even know their name if you don't rectify that at the end of the service. You might not know their name, and yet if you are both Christians, you are brothers and sisters in the blood of Jesus Christ. We are family together, and we're called to take a healthy kind of ownership of one another. So Paul charges the older men to take a special interest in younger men. Verse 2, he charges older women to take a special interest in younger women. Verses 3 and 5, younger men and younger women are to love one another well. United to Christ, we are united to each other. The gospel life, friends, is now a life lived together. Now, doesn't that sound lovely? Doesn't that sound good? Time for kumbaya and a bunch of hugs. Except for the fact, friends, this is a really hard teaching. It's a really challenging teaching. Why? Because as the song goes, and we've quoted it before, God is great, beer is good, and people are crazy. (laughs) People are crazy. Um, That's true outside the church. People are crazy outside the church. And it's true inside the church. People are crazy inside. Even just think of your own, wouldn't your own job be easy if it weren't for the people, right? Church life, it would be so easy if it weren't for the people. Now, of course, this is a home for crazy people because the church was always intended to be a home for messed up, broken, sinful people. If it's not, I got to leave. And you got to follow me out, (laughs) right? But the good news of the gospel is that we're now to live in this mess together. An unavoidable aspect of the gospel is that God has brought us into a family. So yes, understand, and please do understand your salvation in personal terms. 
Know that merely being a part of the church is, is not what saves you. You must have a relationship with Jesus where you can say, Jesus has saved me, but don't dare stop there. Also understand your salvation in, in corporate terms. God has saved you, yes, but now he has brought you into his family. And friends, we all know you don't get to pick your family. <laughs> you don't get to pick your family. Senator Ben Sass tells the story of traveling to Waziristan, a jihadi-infected region of northern Pakistan that President Obama described as the most dangerous place on earth. Uh, Senator Sass traveled there with Senator Joe Donnelly, and those two men disagree on pretty much everything. They have near opposite vote, voting records. It is very hard for the two of them to find much political common ground. And yet, Sash reflected, when they were in Waziristan, they weren't Republicans and Democrats. They, they were Americans. The enemies had become allies. Something we should probably remember come Tuesday. But what's true on that political plane is... Is, is, is truer, is more deeply true, is more profoundly true on the spiritual level. That united to Christ, we are united to each other. So yeah, there may be people in the larger church world that we find difficult. There may be denominations that we have some disagreements with. There may be people in our own church that, that we find challenging. Maybe even the person you just turned to look at right now. I'm, I'm not saying we gloss over differences, but we must remember that these people are not our enemies. They are our allies. United to Christ, we are united to each other. We're united by something so much more powerful than an earthly nation. To the blood of Christ, we are sharing in the same heavenly kingdom. And so we want to be committed to each other. We want to be committed to other gospel churches that are doing great work in our city and across the world. And we want to be committed to the people that are in our own congregation, that share the pews with us week by week, because we understand that the gospel life isn't life alone. The gospel life is life together. Point one. Second thing, though, we see in this text is that Paul takes things a little farther uh, by pressing upon us that the gospel life isn't merely life together, it's life together for each other. In other words, we can't just tolerate one another, but we must actively seek to, to bless one another as we share in this life uh, together. Uh, Paul, as I said, gives lots of different details as you work your way through the text as, how, as to describe how we can live for one another. For now, though, we'll just take a step back and, and, and a, kind of sum, sum the teaching up under, under two headings or two themes that come out repeatedly in these verses, two themes that show us how we're to live life for each other. The first theme is this theme of self-control. I wonder, as we read through the text, if you noted that that came up again and again and again. The, the Greek term has this idea of, of curbing your own desires, your own passions, in order to produce a specific end. So take an athlete, for example. They exhibit great self-control. An athlete will train when they're tired. They'll say no to candy even when it's Halloween. Why? Because when the day of competition comes, she wants to be able to perform at her best. So she's curbing her desires and her passions in order to produce a specific end. 
Well, this, this term, self-control, and its, its cognates appear four times in the 10 verses, uh, verses 1 through 10. Older men, verse 2. Older women, verse 4. Younger uh, women, verse 5. Younger men, verse 6, are all taught to have self-control. We're all to take responsibility for ourselves and for our own behavior to curb our own desires, to curb our own passions in order to produce a specific end. Well, what is that specific end? The second theme we see in our text, where after this theme of self-control, we see this theme of mutual submission. Term appears three times in our verses, verse 5, verse 9, and then actually verse 1 of, of chapter 3. And let's together as a family just embrace the awkwardness of the reality that this term submission is often unpopular in the church and perhaps even more so in our culture. Unpopular and, 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 and understandably so, because it has sometimes been taken and applied to women without the corresponding command to men. And, and, and that approach, the, 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 the unpopularity of it, is actually unfortunate because the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible doesn't teach a, a, one, a one-way street. And what the Bible, in fact, does teach about submission is, is compelling. Let's look at it together. First of all, we see that in this text, this idea of submission is applied to, to both genders, to women in verse 5, to men in verse 9, and then to everyone in verse 1 of chapter 3. And the same thing happens in other passages, most famously in Ephesians 5.21, where before discussing marriage, Paul says, hey, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. He goes on to say, wives, this is what that kind of submission looks like. And husbands, this is what that kind of submission looks like. But the idea, the principle is submit to one another. So submission doesn't belong to one gender or to other, but to both. Um, women are to submit to men, yes, but men are to submit to women. And more than that, men are to submit to other men and women are to submit to other women. We're all to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Okay, what does it mean, though, to submit? Well, this is why I said the term is a compelling one. It means to take a secondary place to, or conversely, we could say it simply means to put the other person first. To take a secondary place, or to put the other person first. That's what it means to submit. So, in other words, when we take a step back and look at this text thematically, we see that it's calling us to have self-control, to curb our own desires, our own passions, in order to put one another first. Self-control and submission. And so he addresses the details. Older men, hey, 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 older men, get out of your own heads. Don't think about yourself so much. Think about other people, particularly the younger men who need your help to figure out what it means to live lives of love and integrity. And an older woman, also don't, don't think of yourself. Think of others. Particularly, think of, of the younger women that you might help them to live lives of, of love and, and dignity. Likewise, younger men, don't be thinking of yourselves, but, but, but devote yourself to, verse 7, good works for the sake of the broader community. And of course, younger women, do the same. Don't be thinking of yourselves. The text then says, think particularly of your husband and your children if you have them. Now, quick time out here. Right? Whose idea was it to teach through Titus? Um, quick time out here. It's in this context of uh, mutual submission that we should understand, this, this context of putting one another first, that we should understand verse 5 where it says uh, there's this call upon young women, you see it there, to work at home. Be self-controlled, pure, working at home. Now, there's a lot of emotion when it comes to this topic, this topic of whether 
both parents should work outside the home or whether one parent should stay in the home and if one parent should, should that be the mother or should that be the father? And honestly, pastorally, we, we see the full mix. We all know parents who feel guilty for working outside the home. And we all know parents who feel shame for just staying at home. And we all know parents who are quite happy doing exactly what they're doing. And then we all know parents, my, my personal favorite, who feel that everybody else should be doing exactly what they're doing. Right? Uh, we all have experiences. We all have stories to share. Now, this is probably a bigger question than we can exhaust right now. But there are a couple of things we can be clear about. And I think we ought to be clear about. First one is, um, remember, when you come to a question like this and a text like this, remember how important it is not to read our culture back into the Bible. This is a very important principle for understanding the Word of God. It was written by a particular person to a particular people. And our goal is to understand what did the author intend for his original hearers to to hear. And, and, And from there, we start to apply those principles to our lives. We want to be careful not to apply our culture back into the Word of God. And so on this question, we want to remember that, you know the idea of a single income family? Where you have one worker, like the breadwinner who goes out to work and everyone else stays at home, you know that it's fantastically new on the stage of history. It is only since the Industrial Revolution that anyone had the idea of of a single-income family. And so this question of, well, you know, should both parents, you know, work outside the home, that would have made no sense to Titus on Crete and to the believers that he was addressing. Why? Because they lived a subsistence lifestyle that required all hands on deck and required everyone to work. Men, yes. Women, yes. But the children, too. (laughs) Everyone threw in. Everyone worked. Everyone did their part so that the family might flourish. So we need to not take our uh, Western traditional understanding of what this verse might be saying and superimpose it on the text to justify an opinion that we had before we even came to it. Don't read your own culture back into the Bible. Second, though, I think it is a fair application in our culture to say that if we do have family, if we do have a spouse, if we do have kids, then they should be our first priority. When you look at the Bible's teaching more broadly, this text specifically, I think we should agree that if we have a spouse, if we have kids, then they should come first. And that we ought not get so distracted by other things that are going on in life, you know, whether that's work, whether that's play, whatever that may be, that we end up neglecting the things that matter most. And parents, we also must be careful not to get caught up in what we think our children need when maybe what they need is is more time with us. That applies to moms just as much as it applies to, to dads. If we have family, they are, humanly speaking, the things that our lives should orbit around. Third thing I think we've been clear on, uh, we can't read the culture back into the Bible. I think it's fair to say families should be our priority if we, if we have them. And then the third uh, principle is just simply that, you know, there's no, you know, there's no one-size-fits-all answer on this. Like, we really like, we, we like that. We like black and white. And life's just gray. <laughs> um, there's no, the family is the priority. So you have freedom to stay home and work if that's what's best for your family. And you have the freedom to go work outside the home if that's what's best for your family. Whichever one you do, you should do out of faith, trusting the Lord and, and working for the, for the welfare of your family unit. And that's going to mean different things for different people and different things for the same people at different times. So in our family, we've done a mix of both. 
Sometimes my wife stayed home, sometimes she works. Right now she's the season where she's working. We've had to figure this out as we've gone, and you have to figure this out as you go. Uh, It's a thing to unpack in your community group together. You need to be in a community group because this is where you can start to apply the principles from the scriptures to the the details of your life. Talk about it with your friends, work through it with one another, figure out what's best for your own particular situation. For now, though, time out over, back to the point. All of us are to foster self-control, self-control and submission, curbing our own desires in order to put one another first. In the gospel, we don't just live this life together. We live it for each other. And here's what I'd like to suggest this morning. Um, People don't like it when we talk about self-control and submission, and they find it really attractive when we live them. So so my my challenge to to us this morning would be, hey, can we talk about self-control and submission a little less, and can we do them a little more? You should certainly never talk about them when you're solely just applying them to someone else, right? Hey, you know, you should have more self-control, and you 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 should submit to me, right? That is the first sign that you're completely wrong, right? We should be applying these things to to ourselves and then not just talking about them, but actually doing them, curbing our desires to put one another first. Because you know when we do that, that an attractive life follows. In the small things, put our phone away and talk to our spouse. Turn off cable news and laugh with the kids. Bake some cookies and take them to that new neighbor down the street. Invite that challenging coworker out to lunch. Sign up to help with coffee or parking or something else here at the church. Carb our natural desires. Put one another first. Don't just live this life together. Live it for one another. You know such self-forgetfulness actually makes you happy? Serving other people is one of the most hedonistic things you can do. When we serve one another, we find a great joy in that, as Jesus said, it's more blessed to give than it is to Receive. So that's, that's the second thing. Life together, but life for each other. Third thing, though, that we want to see from this text before we move on from it is that these, uh, this kind of life won't just make us happier, but may also have a surprisingly profound impact on other people. The small things of self-denial and service to others can have a disproportionate influence. And we see this in our third point, that the gospel life isn't just life together for each other, but also one that has an impact on the world. Now look at the refrains that we see in verses 5 and 10, for example. Verse 5 concludes, you know, we should live this way that the word of God may not be reviled. Verse 10 concludes, we should live this way that in everything we may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. In other words, Paul isn't just interested in good conduct for the sake of good conduct. So it'd be good for, for goodness sake. The point isn't the behavior in and of itself. He's saying, no, good conduct is so important because in the world in which you live, it will profoundly impact the reputation and the reception of the gospel message. That there is a relationship between the way in which you live your ordinary life and the kind of impact we have on the world. There's a relationship between self-control and submission and the church's mission. If our lives are different, if verse 1, they accord with the gospel, then people will take note. Like my friends sitting around at dinner, they'll say, hey, I'm glad that this is going on in your life. And I'm kind of intrigued by it. I'm even drawn toward it because of the way in which you are living your life. So here's the challenging thing. Ah, You know, 
God's plan, he doesn't plan to use us because we're just like everybody else. He plans to use us as we live lives of joyful obedience. You know, sometimes I think we look out at the world and we think, you know, the friends you have who don't know the Lord, family members you have who don't know the Lord, you think it would take like a major miracle for them to come to faith. And Paul is challenging us, you know, that maybe the miracle is more mundane. (laughs) Maybe the miracle occurs as we really apply God's word to our lives and start to live in joyful obedience. The people will then see in us a light and a hope and a humility and a joy that will draw them toward the God that we profess. How is this kind of life possible? How are we meant to (laughs) live in this way? Verses 11 through 14 answer by pointing us once again to Jesus. In Greek, verses 11 through 14 is one long convoluted sentence (laughs) that interconnects the past, the present, and the future. It starts with the past in verse 12 where it says, in the past, the grace of God appeared. The grace of God appeared bringing salvation to the entire world. And then verse 13 tells us in the future, in the future, this same Jesus is going to return and, and we who have waited for him will meet our hope. But because of this past and because of this future, things, verse 12, in the present are different too. We live lives of, of joyful obedience before our God. The way in which we look at what Christ has done for us in the past and what he will do for us in the future changes the way that we live in the present. Jesus only ever asks of us that which he has already done for us. And that's the point of verses 11 through 14. He doesn't come and say, this is the life you got to live. Buck up, shape up, get it done, because I'm coming back. He says, consider how you have been loved. Consider the glorious future that awaits. And live between those two realities. Let what I have done for you and what I will do for you change the way in which you live right now. Consider how I came to live life with you together, leaving the splendor of heaven in order to to dwell among you. Consider how I did that for for the other, that I I had self-control, I had submission to my Father's will in order to die to, to make you whole. Consider how I've done this for the entire world, how I've done this that that all people might come to me. And and in light of this, in light of what I've done and what I'm going to do, live lives that are distinctive today. Live lives that are distinctive today. But we must know this Christ before we can live this kind of life. We must receive his life before we can receive his lifestyle. As we've said again and again in the series, you can only live like Christ once you know that you are loved by Christ. And so it's not as a crushing burden that we receive these commands. It's as an aspect of the freedom we have in grace. Verse 14 drives this home by telling us that Jesus gave himself for us, not that we might wallow in the same sin that brought us low, but that we might live a different way, that we might be freed from the mess of the past, that we might have as his own possession a new desire to live the kind of life we were always intended to live. Friends, it's only with eyes on Christ that we can live life together, live it for each other, and live it for the world.
Amen. Let's pray. Father, thanks for this time in your word. And um, thanks for this family. It's a gift, Lord, that we have this community, that we can uh, study your scriptures together, uh, make sense of it together, apply it to our lives together. And, and we're thankful. Uh, we're thankful because uh, we need this kind of group. We need this kind of help to, to share in life with so that the gospel might really be applied um, to, to the details of our own lives. So, Father, we pray that you would do that, that the grace of God would appear sweet to us and the future that awaits would be real to us and that these realities would change how we live in the present. We pray in his name. Amen.